Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Every person is embedded inside of a network, a network that has some people clustered close to you and other people scattered about, usually clustered close to other people, but but further away from you. You know, we use space a lot of times when we draw a network to signify the strength of a relationship. So your close connections, um, those people that like if, if I were if I go think back to high school, if I were embedded in one particular community, right, then I would have all these close connections that are all very self-similar. They all hang out with the same people. They all think the same way. They all listen to the same thing. And when you need to have uh, a new idea, when you need new advice, when you need to get connected to somebody that can help you with a new problem that you've encountered, those people are useless. Not useless. They're just redundant, right? If you have five people who all know the same person and all think the exact same way, you only actually need one of those people in your life. Yeah. You, what you need are people that provide a little bit different perspective, et cetera. And that's where your, your weak ties, the people that are further away from you, these are the people that you know, but you don't know that well, or you see them uh, you know, once every six months or what have you. I mean, you, you and I, I, I think we have a pretty fair, it's pretty strong relationship, but, but to be honest with you, you and I are weak ties, right? We chat on Facebook every couple of, of weeks, yeah. right? We, we chat live even less, but like there's a benefit to that. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. David, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. No, man, thank you for having me. It's good to be back. It has unfortunately been like a year since we've talked. I mean, we've, we've Facebook messengered like every other week, but it's yeah. been like a year since we've had a, a live conversation. So I'm excited. Well, it's uh, it's really great to have you back here. You have a new book out, which we will talk about in great detail. But before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking what I think is a very fitting question, given the nature of this new book, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that have on your life and your career? <laughs> I'm not sure I was. Um, high school was an interesting time for me. Um, I was definitely not a jock. I was definitely not uh, a nerd. I was definitely not a like a theater kid. I, I did a couple different things, but I was always not deeply embedded in sign of one community. I, I, I don't, I don't know why I actually like, I moved halfway across the country when high school was over. I think other than, so I grew up in new England. And so other than the couple of kids in my high school that were Mormon and were going all the way to Utah, mm. um, I think I went the farthest away in terms of college. Um, which is weird. Cause I would have figured some people had gone to Southern California, but apparently not that year. Um, and, and there, you know, probably found a much better community, um, in college, but no, I, I, uh, I don't know that I was a big part in deeply embedded in, in either one. I, I sort of had that thing where you could walk up to any community and like get along with them, uh -huh. but you, you weren't sort of one of them. And actually, I mean, truthfully, I think that helped a lot. Uh, yeah. if you think about, especially if you think about you've read friend of a friend, if you think about the idea of structural holes and all that kind of stuff, it right. probably helped a lot, but yeah, yeah. I don't know that I was a member of any of them. Interesting. Uh, what did that teach you early on about navigating human relationships? If you're not necessarily embedded deeply into one group. Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and what's weird is I'm also sort of, I, I fancy myself more extroverted and that kind of stuff. So you would think um, that I, I would have been, I guess I just didn't, um, I don't, I didn't understand the appeal of having only like four people that you hang out with all of the time and that kind of thing. I just kind of, I was still, I mean, high, high school, especially and even college and even into your twenties, I think is a time where you're sort of sampling lots of different stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, I was in, I worked in the school newspaper and I also was in theater and I was in the choir and I, I worked out once with the football team. Uh, um, and then when I heard what the schedule for practices and stuff was going to be, I was like, no, sorry, not, doing that. <laughs> not having that at all. Um, but like I, I went and like lifted weights with them. And so I earned that respect too. And it just, it seemed like, I don't know, it, it, the thing that that taught me about relationships is I think there's a lot of, there's a lot to be had for that person that can walk up and build rapport with people relatively quickly. And I think that's probably helped me a lot in terms of my own career. I will say the in what I do now, actually probably being involved in theater was the biggest thing that helped me with my career in terms of high school activities. But uh -huh. um, next to that, it probably would have been that, that I think it's a, I think it's better when you can be interconnected like that. Yeah. Knowing that, why do you think that we have this sort of bizarre notion of you know, having people try to figure out what they want to do with their life at a, a very early age and try to build their entire educational plan around that notion. 
Well, I think I mean, it, truthfully, I think we look back and we uh, a lot of adults retroactively, whatever you decided to do with your life, you then read those clues backwards. Right. Like there. I mean, there's the whole Steve Jobs quote about you yeah. can only connect that, which is actually just Steve Jobs ripping off Soren Kierkegaard and, <laughs> and, and the idea that life must be uh, lived forwards, but can only be understood backwards. So you've, you've, you've got that whole thing. Um, I don't know that that's true so much, but we definitely do it. And I think that then sends a subtle message to the teens and the 20 somethings that you should have it all figured out. Um, what I encourage a lot of people that are early twenties is don't necessarily figure out the job, the role. I mean, there's some people that know, like my wife knew from 18 years old that she wanted to be a doctor. Right. And now she is right. But a lot of other people, it's more about what is the activity you're going to do from day to day? Do you enjoy that activity or not? You can do that in multiple different industries and lots of different companies or as an entrepreneur or what have you. It's so it's, I think it's more about figuring out those activities for me. I really enjoyed, um, I enjoyed writing, but I also enjoyed talking about writing, presenting, uh, you know, little, my minute level of narcissistic personality disorder. So <laughs> liked being on stage, having people listen to me, that sort of a thing. Um, and those activities I still engage in. So I think you can look back and connect those dots, but I also think we're revising, um, history, right? I also, I mean, like in middle school, I wanted to be a professional wrestler. So uh-huh. what is, what do I do with that? Yeah. <laughs> You know, so I don't know. I think I think adults want this idea that their life has this grand plan. So they look back and they find what they call clues, but are really just a couple of related experiences from their life that relate to what they do now. And then that sends this subtle message um, and that turns into a whole lot of pressure to get everything figured out. But like if you think about it, like asking an eight, I know a couple 18 year olds asking an 18 year old to decide what they're going to do for the next 80 years of it. That's a terrible decision. I mean, I wouldn't trust an 18 year old with where we're going to go for dinner, let alone <laughs> like, what you should do with the next 80 years of your life. Wow. Uh, I have to, we have to talk a bit, bit more about the pro wrestling thing. So you're in junior high. You wanted to be a pro wrestler. What oh, dude, dude. prompted that huge fan of Brett, the Hitman heart and the heart foundation. Yeah. Uh, I remember those guys. I don't know. I mean, I you weren't you weren't a fan of pro wrestling at all when you were a kid. I think every boy has a I had phase. A phase. Right. Yeah. No, I did, too. We just also like convinced my parents to go to like WrestleMania and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, it's a show. It's a drama. It's a, yeah. it's a, I mean, this was, I mean, now there's probably, I think it's less, um, probably less so, but like there are now there's so many entertainment options from like your living room, but like this idea, like there's a drama to it and it's physical. It has the appearance of like a sporting contest, but it can do a much better plot line than most sporting. Cause like most, most big actual, like real sports never live up to the hype, mm-hmm. whereas they could script it. So they were always going to live up to the hype. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I was just, it was, a, I mean, it was really it was a ton of putting on a show and that's fascinating. And so I, I don't, I don't, I don't behoove anybody for like, you, you have to have had it, but I think everybody had that phase and I don't, I don't think it's guilty, uh, for people when they, uh, I don't think they should feel guilty when they continue that phase, even in adulthood, as long as you're like, this is some people go to the theater. Some people get really big into movies or television and other people, this is their drama. Right. But <laughs> hey, you know, it's all the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any way we can get out of this conversation without wanting without talking about education, given my personal interest in it (laughs) and the fact that you are a college professor and a parent. But I want to approach this in a couple of different ways this time. Uh, First is the question of what do you think we should have learned in school but never did statistics. Sorry. (laughs) And let's just go right to two. We don't even need to talk anymore about the statistics to have you thought about how you're educating your own children? And three, as a college professor, if somebody were to ask you to design the education system of the future, how would you design it? Which I realize, like I said, three questions in one. Okay. So statistics, definitely statistics. Um, I, I didn't take my first class in statistics till graduate school. And I got really, really angry that I wasted all that time in algebra. Uh-huh. Right. Cause I mean, think about it. Like you are every day in on the news or when you're just looking at, at your friends and, and surveying every, every day you deal with having to like look at a sample size and then make a, a broad observation about the world based on statistics, whether you're reading a poll in a media newspaper or you're just asking five friends and then trying to get a feel for or something. We need that all of the time. 
we need to solve for X like barely ever. I can't think of the last time I've used anything algebraic, right? Um, other than like that weird space where algebra butts up against geometry, right? But that's that's about it. Um, the other thing that happens in statistics is you start getting into probabilities. Like I'm reading um, Andy Duke's Thinking in Bets right now, which is actually really kind of a rehash of Signal and the Noise from Nate Silver, but through the lens of poker. So it's a little bit more entertaining than Nate was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all about probabilistic thinking and the idea that like you, if you're making a prediction about the future, you're not right or wrong. What you have to do is figure out what's the likely scenario, what's the second most likely, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so those, those sort of things rather than um, straight algebra. So statistics. Um, two, what was two again? Two is my, something as a father, yeah. my kids go to school. How are you thinking about educating? Like, how are you educating your kids and, and what impact is the fact that you're a professor, uh, having on the way you're educating your kids? Yeah. I mean, so my kids are six and four and so we don't do, I mean, we're in kindergarten and, and pre-K, um, probably I guess first grade starts here in a couple, uh, really prepping for first grade starts here in a couple weeks. There's not much, I mean, those truthfully, those years are about socialization. Like the biggest lesson I think boys learn in kindergarten is that if you hit people when you're angry, they don't want to play with you anymore, <laughs> which is a good life lesson. For sure. But like that's, we're not working on the hard stuff, right? Yeah. Um, we're working on that. I mean, we're doing words and reading and like my, my son can like read signs as we drive by. And it fascinates me now that he's, that that sort of clicked. So those things happen, but like, um, reading is also kind of binary, right? Um, so it's really more, what are we trying to, uh, I mean, they're in that system. There's a lot of laws around why we, we keep them in that system. Um, we're not really trying to add too much to that system because we're, I don't think we're at the point where if you, if you look at like, so being a professor and, and having written a book on the psychology of creativity, et cetera, if you look at the research, it's somewhere around fourth or fifth grade that the curriculum sort of shifts and it starts to get into that one right answer, that regurgitation thing, et cetera. So we have a couple, even with the oldest, we've got a couple years where that before that kind of hits the fan and we really have to do things outside of school to encourage them to continue to think um, laterally and to continue to, to come up with multiple possible solutions and all of that kind of stuff. So we're not, we're not quite there yet. Um, we definitely probably the one thing that we emphasize, um, outside of school more than, you know, please for the love of God, don't hit people around you. Um, is we probably try and, and encourage sort of a love of reading and stories. So when I say reading and stories, there are certain things that I don't mind my kid watching on a phone on YouTube, et cetera. If it's like, a real dramatic thing and they're learning plot and they're learning empathy for characters and whatever. Um, I, I, it annoys me when they watch like other people playing video games, right? <laughs> but, but when they're watching stuff that is a little more arc of a story, I don't really mind. I also don't think that they're going to inherit a world with less screens. So I think it's probably okay that they spend a little bit of time on screens every day. Yeah. Um, I realize that's not a complete answer to your question, but yeah, I'm also still sort of running out the clock until we get to that fourth grade period where it's going to be a little bit more uh, intense in that regard. And then the third question, how would I redesign school or university if I could? Yeah. Um, you know, I, so I'm torn on this. So you have this idea, right, that um, you, you have a bunch of people debating whether or not even an undergraduate education um, is worthwhile. And the thing that I would say is that it, it absolutely unquestionably is not if you're internally motivated and internally curious. So if you already know what you want to do, you can learn everything about that faster outside of that system. However, I've only met about 10% of late teenagers, early 20 somethings who are in that category yeah. for the rest of them. The data is pretty clear. You are unquestionably, if, if you're going to stumble around and it's going to take you forever to figure out what you want to do, you are unquestionably better off with a degree than without a degree in terms of earnings and happiness and marital longevity and all sorts of indicators. Uh-huh. Um, so that said, since it's not all that important, I don't know that I would encourage people to be a major. I am in love with places like St. John's college in Annapolis, where you, the whole curriculum over four years is you read the classic works of Western civilization. And to the extent that those butt up against categories in, of the traditional arts or sciences, you go off on that realm, but you also just get really, really familiar with sort of the entire human story. And, and St. John's is only, I think about 800 students. 
and yet they are disproportionately represented in like the Senate and major business and all of those sort of things. So I actually think we should probably go um, back to that sort of broader liberal arts education. Like there was, there's very few schools that still even offer a major in letters, mm -hmm. which is essentially history, humanities, um, civilization, literature, et cetera. I think that we probably need a little bit more of if the people who are going to school are going to school because they don't know what they're going to do. And so they need more exposure to the diversity of options that are out there so they can figure it out. Mm hmm. Again, if you're you're in, I, I fully support sort of Peter Thiel's idea with the Thiel fellows that if you know what you're going to do, you're internally you're intrinsically motivated enough to pursue it and you're curious enough to continue learning about it, then like you probably don't need that system. You can probably build it um, on your own. So why spend all of that money and waste truthfully two and a half or so years yeah. getting there when you could just go right there? So. <clears throat> The thing that's interesting to me is, is we know how to update it. We know how to solve this problem. Why is it taking so long? <laughs> now I have to go back into, I uh, see now I should have gone back and listened to our prior one because we talked about some of this and I don't remember yeah. if my answers are going to line up here. I instinctively, I think, um, that they are one of the problems I think has to do with systems. Mm-hmm. So systems and the idea that I'm a huge fan of Peter Senge and systems thinking and the idea, you know, you change one thing in a system and other things have a resonant effect yeah. or other people refuse to go along with said change. And then that cascades down. Um, and then even organizations are embedded inside of sort of larger systems, et cetera. Somewhere, somewhere along uh, the 1950s, 1960s, some people actually placed the blame on the GI Bill, and there was this whole group of people that that wouldn't normally have societally gone to college now going to college. Um, we got it in our heads that we could use college degrees, and then if if we needed further stratification, we could even use the brand of the college as a filter for us in terms of when, when I say us now, I mean big organizations that are um, full of people um, and wanting to recruit new people every year and, and what have you. So we're talking about the major corporations and that sort of stuff, not in an evil like Ralph Nader way, but just this, it is what it is. Um, we built up a system where that became the feeder mm -hmm. and there's there's not a lot of people that want to change out of that yet because they can understand it. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a lot of people that see like, that are willing to see that we don't, it, it, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that in order to make that change, we would have to pivot in a way that would introduce uncertainty to so many different people who are relying on that system to make further decisions about who they recruit, who they hire, um, all of that sort of thing. And then even parents have this idea that like, it, again, if you're in the, if your kid's in the 90% and they have, don't know what they want to do, then this is a safe place to run out the clock for four years until they figure it out. Mm -hmm. So there's, there would be so much discomfort with overhauling that system that it would be hard to do. I think there, there's two people I think that are doing a phenomenal job of this. I mentioned one. Um, is Peter Thiel and the idea of the Thiel Fellows. Again, that 10%, that, that intrinsically motivated, what have you. The other, surprisingly, is Mike Rowe and uh, Rowe Works and all of the the attention that he's pointing on the fact that like there are still trades that are every bit as difficult to master as would require a bachelor's degree, but don't, and that offer, in some cases, especially if your degree was in literature, um, which, which my undergrad degree was in writing and literature, so I know this firsthand, um, uh, pay more, right? And pay more over the lifetime and what have you. And um, we call them sort of blue collar as if that's diminutive, but it's, it's actually not. And I think we need to probably do a better job celebrating that. So more people see that as a possible option. Right. Um, if you don't, I mean, truthfully, if you don't know what you want to do with your life, if you're like a, for a, a male specifically, if you don't know what you want to do, you're 19 years old, you don't know what you want to do with your life and you want to explore. I would much rather see you go into like a six to nine month program to learn how to weld and then go make 60 to 75 grand a year while you figure it out instead of go 60 to 75 grand in debt. However, you then again have to be intrinsically motivated enough to continue to, re to look around at all of the things that we force you to do. We call them gen eds, all the things we force you to learn about so that you will find that thing. Right. The, the, if you pick that path, right, the system's not set up to expose you to lots of other stuff. So you, you need something in that replacement as well. So there's just, there's a lot of people who have um, a stake in the matter. And I don't know that they're comfortable with the idea of, of pivoting towards the unknown. Right. There may be a time where we can figure out exactly what that is. Um, and then, then it might be easier to make that pivot. Yeah. I guess the, the, the big issue I have with this notion of, of discomfort with the unknown is look at what it's costing us. Uh, 
you know, Chase Jarvis and I had a really interesting conversation about this where he said, you know, a lot of people point to one of the things that really contributes to sort of a stagnant economy or a slow growing economy is student loan debt. And I, I've, I've thought about this a lot because I remember getting out thinking, okay, I have this much student loan debt. I'm better off actually collecting unemployment than I am working for $10 an hour because at least I get the unemployment. Uh, and, and it's almost like there's an incentive for you to earn less because you're going to hand over so much. The other part of this I keep wondering is, okay, there's only so long that you can keep lending out money and not getting it back before there's a, a systematic consequence to this. Well, okay, so so there's, there's so two things on that. So number one is the global sort of the economist approach that like the dumbest thing we ever did, and this is me flashing my libertarian porcupineness. The dumbest thing we ever did is start federally backing almost all student loans mm-hmm. because it made it easier. A, it it made it easier to secure them, and so a lot of people that probably should have been pushed to the micro way or the Peter Thiel way just you know, adopted a bunch of them. But, but B, the other thing is it made it a whole lot easier for costs to go up and no one really to notice. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, we see, by the way, the same thing in healthcare. When you, when you separate out the customer from the payer, suddenly things get more expensive. It happens almost every time. Right. So that's, so that's one side. The, on the other side though, I like, I'm not, you're, if I remember your story, you're more referring to the student loan debt on your MBA than an undergrad degree, correct? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's it's more from both, but yeah. Yeah, but so I'm definitely I'm definitely on you with you in that regard. The the long term data though is is still suggestive that like all other things being equal, you are better off having gone through this four year finishing school before you embark on life. You will you won't in the initial, especially if you have the wrong degree and it takes you forever to figure out where your thing is. But you will um, over time you you make more money. You have your marriages last longer. Um, the divorce rate is dramatically lower among couples who both have degrees. I have no idea why. But but it is right. Life satisfaction tends to be a bit higher. So like all other things being equal, it's still a net positive over like a 30 year time frame. And I think that's probably why we haven't um, seen it as much of a crisis right. as it probably should be. That's not that's that's point two point one or on the economic thing. You're exactly right. When those people don't find that thing and the wheels don't spin and they don't start repaying it, we've got a huge problem. But I think basically every administration and every Congress is like, and that's future Congress's problem. I don't care. <laughs> right. Uh, well, they will when their salaries are affected by it. <clears throat> well, but they'll already be out and working yeah. on street and just lobbying the people who have to deal with the problem they created. Definitely. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and get into why we're really talking today, which is to talk about. Let's be a little less cynical, shall we? Yeah. Well, it's not cynical. It's just you know intellectual curiosity on my part. I don't see it as cynicism, but. Um, oh no, I'm I'm the one. That totally... <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally. uh, so let, let's get into uh, the concepts of a friend of a friend. But I, I want to actually start by asking why why this book and why now. Yeah. So, I mean, the big, the big idea for the book is that we need to redefine networking, that it's not about um, running up the count on LinkedIn. It's not about knowing as many people. It's not about working the room. It's not about all the stuff that makes people feel super uncomfortable. It's about understanding the network that you're already in. Right. And so the, really what happened for me, I, I got done with under new management and I'm, I'm, I'm already fascinated with studies in network science. And it seems like every season, so every spring, every fall, there's two or three new networking books and they're all, I would put them all in the category of networking advice books. Mm. They are one guy, usually a guy, sometimes a girl, but one person's advice on how they built their amazing network or the slightly more compelling how they didn't have an amazing network and then they switched this thing in their life and and it, everything became amazing and if you do it too, you can have that too, right? But like, you know, you, you're familiar with Austin Kleon's work. My favorite mm. saying from him, all advice is autobiographical, right? Yeah. So all of those advice books are one person's story. And then the, the disconnect that I'm seeing is that then we go and we try and do it. We take so-and-so's advice for giving the perfect elevator pitch, right? Or how to make the perfect introduction, what have you. And we, we go do it and then we feel awkward and inauthentic. Uh-huh. Well, no wonder, because you're literally trying to be somebody else in that moment. So no wonder you feel inauthentic. So I'm looking at these one sort of people's advice and I'm fascinated by studies of network science and starting to read more of them. We touch into some of them in my prior books, but then decided like, I'm going to take a deep dive in this area and learn everything I can. And I felt like I had like the missing piece, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I'll let you know in like two years if other people feel that way, but I felt like this is what's missing from the advice books, which is like an understanding of how the actual science of networks 
works. People, I think, don't need to learn the here's the perfect thing, do step one, step two, step three. I think they need to learn here's the concept, here's the phenomenon that we observe in all networks. And now that you know that, you can see it in your network and then you figure out authentically how to navigate that network in a way that resonates with you but is in line with that phenomenon. It's a little more more uncomfortable. You can't really – like I can't sell that on late night TV. I realize that. But like that's what's going to make all of us better long term. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's get into the concepts in the book. Uh, you know, I think you and I both kind of alluded to the fact uh, before we hit record here that it would be damn near impossible to cover all of them because there were so many. But I, I think I want to start with this notion of finding strength in weak ties. What does it mean and how does it apply to our lives? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah, so so this is one – this was actually one of the more infuriating chapters to write. And the, the reason is that the notion of weak and dormant ties is not new. I'm not the first person to shine a light on this. Um, other people have. You even see it in the networking advice books, although it's usually wrong. Like it's, it's either wrong in one of two capacities. Either people think that your weak ties are your friend of a friend. Right. They're not. They're people you already know. They're not people you need to be introduced to or that people think that like what that means is that when I need a new job or I need a new idea or whatever, then I should go out and reconnect with all of my weak ties. It's too late then. Like so to to give you an idea of the actual sort of the core of the idea is that every person is embedded inside of a network, a network that has some people clustered close to you and other people scattered about, usually clustered close to other people, but but further away from you. You know, we use space a lot of times when we draw a network to signify the strength of a relationship. So your close connections um, those people that like if if I were – if I go think back to high school, if I were embedded in one particular community, right, then I would have all these close connections that are all very self-similar. They all hang out with the same people. They all think the same way. 
they all listen to the same thing. And when you need to have uh, a new idea, when you need new advice, when you need to get connected to somebody that can help you with a new problem that you've encountered, those people are useless, not useless. They're just redundant. Right. If you have five people who all know the same person and all think the exact same way, you only actually need one of those people in your life. Yeah. You, what you need are people that provide a little bit different perspective, et cetera. And that's where your your weak ties, the people that are further away from you. These are the people that, you know, but you don't know that well or you see them, uh, you know, once every six months or what have you. I mean, you you and I, I, I think we have a pretty fair is pretty strong relationship. But, but to be honest with you, you and I are weak ties. Right. Mm-hmm. We chat on Facebook every couple of, of weeks. Yeah. Right. We, we chat live even less. But like there's a benefit to that. Mm-hmm. The fact that you're in a different community than I'm in, right? And so we, tr- when we, even even when we just talk about books, we have so many different experiences with different marketing angles or different communities to write in or to write for or shows to be on or what have you that we end up being able to send ideas that that one of, or of, or the other of us hasn't ever thought of to each other. Mm-hmm. That's what a weak tie does that a close tie can't do. And so when you need that new information, you need to be seeking them out. The thing is. Right. People can smell desperation. So if you're just waiting to that needy time and then you're just going to go use it, people kind of figure it out. So the real lesson is to make it a point. It's first of all, it's okay that you don't talk to everyone at the same interval of time. It's okay that some people are your once a year friends and some people are your once a week friends. That's totally fine. But be intentional about those relationships that are in your life. Check back with them on that regular interval so that when the time comes for you to be able to help them or them to help you, you're both ready. The rapport is there and it's just one into series of conversations. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, what about this notion of becoming a broker and filling structural holes? Yeah. So, okay. So think back. So strong ties, weak ties, that, that happens because of clustering, right? P- we cluster towards people who are self-similar to us either because, um, we're, uh, we just naturally encounter people in our same industry more often, or like people who work on our floor at the, in the office, we talk to them more often just because truthfully, cause we're lazy and we don't walk far enough. Um, but those close ties, we cluster around those people, usually around department or industry or geography or what have you. And then your, you know, your weak ties are often a different part of the network. They're usually embedded in a different cluster. So those clusters, um, are almost like, I almost think of it like gravitational pull. People get pulled towards each other and that opens up space the same way it does in the space time continuum. I actually didn't take physics as an undergrad, so I don't know what you would call that. Um, but it opens up space that's referred to a network science as a structural hole, a gap between these two communities. There's not information flowing the way that it should be. And it turns out that the people that span that, that connect two communities, they create far more value for the network than anybody else, right? Not just for the two clusters, but for themselves as well. If you think about it, this in the context of creativity, right? If all ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas and the most disruptive innovations are the most novel combinations, those are probably going to come from multiple different communities, right? I mean, like I think about like, um, not that you would, not that this was apparent to anybody and it wasn't in the book, although it, it was, and it got cut later. You think about something like Hamilton, right? Which is, takes the community of, of uh, 800 word historical biographies and the community of sort of hip hop and rap and puts them together in a new and original combination that like blows everybody's mind. That only happens because people are willing to stand in the gap that is a structural hole and connect those two communities. And I think especially the the real lesson for um, folks that are really, I mean, you could call it creative, but really anybody who's trying to influence the world in any way is probably going to have the quickest route to influence as someone who connects those two communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so another idea that really caught my attention was this notion of building teams from all over your network. Uh, how does that apply in our lives? Like, what is that? What are the implications of that? So, so this is a really interesting, um, series of network studies. It started with one that I've written about before, which is a Brian Uzi, Jarrett Spiro study of Broadway teams. And the idea that the teams that stay together forever, don't actually outperform brand new teams, but the teams that are brand new don't outperform either. It's the teams that have sort of a mix of old and new connections that come together for a time and then disband and go work their separate ways tend to have the most valuable work, the most creative work. Um, and so it, it creates this idea that like we, we have a tendency, especially as humans, again, clustering is a very real phenomenon to, okay, I know that I can trust these four or five people. So I'm, I'm going to bring them in on every project. I'm going to bring them in on everything. They're my, the band of brothers, right? Or 
like, or I got to think of one that works for sisters. I don't, I don't know. Silo of sisters. That's, that's terrible. That's a, uh, okay. <laughs> whatever we would call that. Right. Yeah. But like we go to the people that are sort of try our tried and true connections so often mm-hmm. and that's fair. And there's a, there's a whole thing called bonding capital that for social support and that sort of stuff, you need it. But when you want to do work that really matters and resonates and what have you, you need a mix of old and new connections. And the only way you do that is to be intentional about where you get your teams. And are you pulling in your teams from, you know, strong and weak ties from people that are in other clusters, from people that are different from you. That's that those combinations of teams create the most powerful thing. So it's kind of twofold. If you're an individual, that's the lesson. If you're in leadership in an organization, then the lesson is don't treat your org chart like a rigid thing. Mm-hmm. Understand that there's a network behind it and that helps you. And you actually need to be pulling people in from multiple different departments. Even if something just seems like it's a finance problem or it's a marketing problem, you need to be pulling people in from lots of different areas because you're going to get better quality ideas when you do that. It's interesting because to me, it, you've in so many ways described the working relationship that I have with Mars Dorian, who's our, our visual artist. Like we come together for a project once every six or seven months when there's something we need and nobody else can do it. And uh, I tell him what I want. And, uh, you know, we end up with some of the most amazing work we've ever seen. And we've been working together for probably at this point more than five years. And I've never met him in person. Oh, that's interesting. And, and I mean, I, I would assume, too, that there are different. It's not just you and him. It's usually you and him and someone else. Oh, yeah. And it's a new person every time. So it's like even though you go back to him every once in a while, there's new people that are in that community every single time. And, and that's probably why people love your show and listen to it often. And your cover art is amazing. And, you know, all of that stuff. Right. Because you're sort of exactly in line with it. I had no idea that you never met him in person, though. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Despite having worked together for five years. And it's funny because you, know, you literally have described the the. the process for how we put together our free ebook called The Compass, uh, which was a combination of a designer I had worked with years ago, Mars and another artist. And it was four people working together on this thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's exactly right. And it's, and it's, you see it in, uh, multiple different communities. Again, it's one of these fascinating studies that came from the world of Broadway. So it was steeped in sort of what we would call a traditional creative industry, but it gets replicated in, in traditional organizations. It gets replicated in just individual social networks. It just, uh, while you might over time build more trust with the same group of people every time you also, you get exposed to the same things, you solve problems in the same way. And you end up again, the keyword is redundant. You end up having these redundant connections if you go to the same people all the time because they all are thinking the same way. Mm-hmm. And you need you need a little bit of structure because it speeds up the process. Like you and Mars are familiar with each other's process now. So when you yeah. drag somebody else in, like things can go quicker yeah. um, when you start working. But you still need enough people to be able to disrupt that process if it happens and you want to go in a different way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about this idea of preferential attachment. What does that mean and how does that relate to networks? Yeah. So, so, all right. So two, actually two concepts here, cause they kind of go together. So there's this term in both the networking advice books and in the journal journals that publish network science research called super connector. These are the people with a disproportionate number of connections. And what's interesting is that in the world of network science, they, they were called super connectors specifically because we originally thought that it's the most connected people that are the reason the world feels so small. Right. Um, I mean, Malcolm Gladwell even wrote about this like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in the networking advice book, we in, in my networking advice books, we still sort of refer to those people as, well, they're the ones that keep the whole community together because they have so many different connections. OK, well, it's not actually true in network science. Right. Like what we found is that just because there are so many strong and weak ties and what have you, networks are resilient enough that you don't need people with a disproportionate number of connections to have those quick. You could just have a one or two introductions to everyone that you want to know. However, the term stuck like so we still use the term super connector to refer to people that have a disproportionate number of connections. If I if I took everyone in your life, like even just everyone on your Facebook uh, feed uh, and I and I graphed the number of connections they have, it would not be a normative distribution, which is an inverted U right? The idea that there's an average and then people are one or two standard deviations above or below the average. It wouldn't look like that. It would actually look like a power law, an 80, 20 principle, Pareto principle, right? Okay. So these people exist. Now, this is also interestingly enough, why it looks like networking comes so easy to so many people, because once we know these people existed, scientists started going, okay, well, what causes them? And they found this principle of preferential attachment. Preferential attachment basically means that the most connected people in a community, in a network 
are more likely to have new introductions made to them than are the least connected people. It's a Matthew effect. It's a compound interest, right? It's a, it's a critical mass in gravitational pull. Right. Once you get to a certain point, you don't have to keep working your network. It starts to work for you to bring connections in. So the reason that it looks so easy to some people is that it is. They've gotten up that curve, and now people are, are sort of coming to them. That's preferential attachment. So it's sort of good news, bad news. If you're one of the people that's up the curve, this is exactly what's going on. And you probably need to switch and focus a bit more about curation and who you're establishing relationships with. And if you're looking frustrated at those people, it's okay. There's nothing special about them other than the time it took to compound all those relationships. And yeah. you will get there too, if you keep working. Interesting. It, it, the, 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 you've more or less described the process of, of how we find guests for unmistakable creatives. I <laughs> know that's true, right? You, there was, there was a time when you probably needed to cold pitch hundreds of people a week to get four people to talk to you, to get one of them on the show. Now, just the referral network of past guests going, Hey, you've got to be on the show is so um, is so powerful that you are spending way more time fielding are these referrals actually worthwhile or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the illusion of the majority. <laughs> yeah. So this is a this is a fun one and one that you and I were talking about too offline because it's like it's like the one that uh, every everyone who has to market something needs to think about. So, okay, we already talked about this a bit before. Humans are herd people. We're network people. We're community people, right? We cluster towards people. We form these networks and communities, and we take our cues off of other people in that network, right? This is why I'm actually kind of glad when I look back to my high school years that I wasn't too embedded in community because I would have only seen the world according to the, like those people, right? The interesting thing is we go back to those super connectors, right? If they're the most connected people, then they have a disproportionate influence on everyone else in that community or that network, right? Because if, if everybody's looking to the left and the right and there's one guy or one girl that everyone looks to the right and, and they all see the same person, that person has the ability to make it look like more things are going on in that community than are possible. Now, marketers have kind of known this for a little while. So in the, in the book, we actually profile Tim Ferriss and Tim didn't know that this existed. He called it the surround sound effect, but it's very, very real. What he did was he, there was a time, it's hard to believe now because it's been like 10 years. There was a time when no one knew who Tim Ferriss was, Yeah. right? Like, and, and that was by design. He was selling vitamins on the internet through a series of shell companies so that he could outsource his life and go learn kickboxing in China, right? Mm -hmm. So it was by design, but then he had to, he flipped and he wrote this book about how to do it. And so now he's got a, he is the brand and he needs everyone to know who he is. So what he has to do in a very short period of time is appear everywhere. Now, you can do that in a couple different ways. You can drop hundreds of thousands of dollars on different publicity teams and, and end up being everywhere, right? Or you can pick what community do I want to appear everywhere in. And so he picks, okay, 18 to 35-year-old tech-savvy males. Mm -hmm. And if you're in that community, you read certain blogs, you trust certain influencers, you go to certain conferences. And he makes it a point over two years to build relationships with all of those people. So when the book comes out, the journalists from those publications are writing about it because Tim's their friend. The influencers are tweeting about it because Tim's their friend, right? They're talking about it or he's actually presenting at those conferences. Conferences. So if you are an 18 to 35 year old tech savvy male in the first like six months of this book launching, you're going, this guy is everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. Fine. I give up. Like I'll buy the book. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you were an eight, I mean, if you were, let's say you were 45, right. And you worked in more sort of corporate tech or what have you, you had no idea. And if you were in a totally different industry, you had no idea who this person was until many, many years later. No. And so the, when, what you see is a very deliberate attempt to create the illusion of majority. And I, now I realize this is a super broad thing. Most people are listening and are like, yeah, but I'm, I don't have to launch a book. I don't have to do this. But like you do have, if you think about like the Kevin Kelly thousand Fan, true fans thing, mm -hmm. you still have to go find those people and you're going to have a much easier time if you target a specific community and draw all thousand from that same community because you appear to be everywhere than if you're trying to draw them from all of these disparate communities that could all potentially be fans of your work. Mm -hmm. uh, but in reality, you're, it's going to be much easier if you pick the exact, like Seth Godin would call it the who's it for question. If right. you pick that question first, then you can go, okay, who's it for? Great. Who do they know? Right. Right. And then I need to get known by those people so that they will uh, have that influence on me and my work. Wow. Very cool. Uh, you have to tell the Mona Lisa story. 
<laughs> yeah. So this is actually, um, I was debating whether or not I, I, to put this in because it's not very like, it's not very prescriptive. You people, you can do the Tim Ferriss trick. I don't know how you do this one other than like, just have people steal copies of your work. But <laughs> right. what, what what's weird about the Mona Lisa in general is that people now will talk about how amazing of a painting it is and how the, the brushstrokes and this angle and the light and the half smile and all of these things. And clearly that's why it's a masterpiece. Well, in reality, it was not a masterpiece for hundreds of years after it was created. I mean, it actually took like multiple decades for it to be even created. And then when it did, it just sat in the random hallway of some baron or what have you until it eventually found its way um, to to the Louvre, to Paris. And and what's interesting is even then, like now people go to the Louvre and they line up to go see this postage stamp size picture. Have you ever seen it, by the way, in person? No. It's hugely disappointing because it's like the size of my MacBook, right? Like the, the whole <laughs> painting is the size of my MacBook turned portrait. It's really not that big of a painting. Wow. Um, but anyway, people, millions of people line up for it. Nobody really paid attention to it at all. Everybody was singing the praises of all of these different works from that period until two Italian guys or really one Italian guy, but he, a couple couple friends um, decided that it was a tragedy. This Italian painter's works would be featured in this French gallery. And so they stole it. Um, they, they camped out overnight. They pretended to be janitors. They camped out overnight. And then the next day was a holiday uh, in France. And so since the museum was closed, they, they crawled out of the broom closet they spent the night in, stole it and fled. And it took uh, multiple weeks. And there were all of these stories about, um, oh, who stole it? And it was this great caper. And in fact, what's interesting is the police even interviewed the guy who stole it. And they're interviewing him. And like, it's literally he's sitting on a crate giving the interview and the painting is in that crate, but he has a plausible alibi. So they, they go their separate ways. And it isn't until he tries to sell the painting that the art dealer calls the cops on him and he ends up getting caught. But this, this, the newspapers running with this story of who stole it and the drama of this idea that there's this nationalistic intent behind it and all that sort of stuff gets people paying attention to it. And so when they finally get it and bring it back, to the museum, thousands of people line up to go see it. Mm -hmm. And those thousands of people tell other people about it and they tell other people. And now, now since it has gotten to that, like Gladwell would call it the tipping point, but now since it's got that little bit of attention, everybody's talking about it. It gets not, not long after that happens, it gets parodied by somebody. And then I think Dali, Salvador Dali parodies the parody. And now it's on like computer mug or computer mouse pad. People still use mouse pads. Actually, I know I somewhere in my closet, I have a Mona Lisa mouse pad, I swear, yeah. but I don't, I don't even use a mouse pad. It's on mugs, it's on t-shirts and it's on all sorts of stuff. My kids really have this, like looked at a photo the other day of a Lego Mona Lisa. Cause they're big into Legos. Like it's the most parodied and represented thing ever. Not, but it's, it's literally only famous because it was famous. And nobody cared about it until it was famous for being stolen. And like I said, the, the lesson isn't all that prescriptive unless you want to have somebody <laughs> steal all of the galleys of your book or something like that. But it's it's fascinating how much we take our cues from other people, that the yeah. stuff that we even like, sometimes we don't like it because it's great. We like it because everyone around us likes it. Yeah. It was interesting. I, I remember, like, right, right. I remember what, what happened. I was right after I read that. I sent you a message saying, "Hey, I think I'm going to leak a story to the press saying that all the galleys of my book were stolen from the that, office." That every of single galley was stolen. Right? Yeah. No, it's not a bad <laughs> idea. Right? Yeah. Um, all right. So we got two more concepts here that I, that I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, which is the the notion of shared activities and the concept of multiplexity. Okay. All right. Wow. Those are two. Well, I, they're kind of related. <laughs> the shared activities principle is a really interesting insight from one of my favorite people, but one of my favorite network scientists too, Brian Uzi. And, um, Essentially, what, what Brian and a couple other people have found out is that and you probably felt this in your own life. I think almost all of us have. People don't actually mix at networking mixers. Like people just don't. We don't. The unstructuredness of the event, we either get so nervous we talk to no one and we stand in the corner like stirring our Diet Coke and waiting, trying to figure out how to leave. Or you just end up having two or three conversations with people you already know. Like if the goal of these sort of traditional meetups and those sort of things is to meet new people, that doesn't happen to the level of effectiveness that it should. And that got Brian really wanting to investigate, okay, what are the types of events where people actually do meet new connections that are different from them, et cetera. And what he found, he, he started using this term shared activities to describe sort of a collection of, of stuff that would look like it has nothing in common. And what he basically said is that People will connect better by accident if they're engaged in an activity that draws a diverse community that has something at stake, 
right? An objective other than meeting people. Um, and there's something at stake to sort of achieve and it requires, and achieving it requires those people to work together. Right. So in the, in the book, we talk about, um, a friend of mine, John Levy, actually, we talk about two people, John Levy and Chris Shembra. Levy was sort of first. So we, we talk about, he's been doing this for probably 10 years now. He plans these dinner parties and they're not just unstructured dinner parties, carefully curated guest list, um, carefully curated where people are going to sit, but you arrive at this dinner party and you don't know anybody else by design. You don't know anybody else, or maybe, you know, two other people in that room. And the first thing he tells you is that you're actually going to be cooking your own dinner too, right? Mm -hmm. There's something at stake, right? He pairs people up and assigns them tasks. There's something at stake that requires people to work together, right? And it's a room full of strangers and it's very, it's not, it's not huge stakes, right? The world is not going to end if you burn the chicken, right? right? But, but it's enough to force people to drop their usual, who are you? What do you do? Scripts and figure out how to work with this person that they got seemingly randomly assigned to. Right. And, and the other thing I forgot to tell you is that John will tell them you don't use your, your full name or or tell people what you do until we sit down to eat. So you've got to explore all of the other dimensions of someone. Right. Uh And these activities draw people together um, a little bit better than would just a random dinner party where people, those two or three people that know each other would spend all their time talking to each other and everybody else would feel awkward for the whole dinner. I've left some of those. They're terrible. Right. John's parties work far better. And they, and they actually, I mean, it is kind of related to this idea of multiplexity, right? Because John's parties work because humans are, multifaceted creatures. We have lots of different parts to us and anything you can do, shared activities are a great one to get people to drop their usual script and have to have to present themselves a little bit differently and, and have to get to know other people a little bit differently from how that other person would want to be presented builds a deeper relationship faster. In the, in the book, we, we describe this as the principle of multiplexity, which is a fancy SAT word for the, the fact that sometimes in relationships, there's one context for connection and sometimes there are multiple, right? So one would be like we work together. Multiple will be we work together. We live in the same town. Our kids go to the same school. Uh, and, and we both uh, are in a running club that we both like there's four different ways that we see each other, four different types of conversations we have, et cetera. You build a deeper relationship faster with those people that are multiplex ties. And so anything you can do to force yourself and force that other person to explore each other from different facets and different angles builds a deeper relationship stronger. So shared activities definitely do that. And I think you can, I think I'm really encouraged by the level of a lot of smart people planning conferences, planning meetups, planning events a little bit better in line with these shared activities principles, because the relationships get better um, for it. The other thing you can do is even when you just meet someone, ask a little bit smarter questions. We all sort of default to the, what do you do question? And I actually forced you to answer it one time for me because I love your answer of the whole, I use the internet to make things, but like, but that also, now we're going to have a conversation about what that means instead of like the most, the the optimal likelihood that we're going to connect might actually be over something different, right? Uh, It might be, be over our backgrounds or our sports teams, or I don't, I don't love surfing, but if I did, it would take me forever to find surfing if we're talking about how you use the internet to make things, right? right? So it's much better to explore it from multiple different angles at the same time, because we're much more likely to find that first connection. And then as we find more, we build a deeper relationship faster. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, this has been truly amazing and uh, packed with a, a ton of really valuable and eye-opening insight. Uh, so I want to finish with the last question. It'll be interesting to see how you answer this uh, a year later. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I don't remember my answer last time. Um, I would probably, my, my answer probably had to do with the idea that I think we think unmistakable means that when you see it, like you know that it, like I see a Mars Dorian picture and I know it's, it's him, but I think that that's not interesting to me. The fact that that stems from someone who's figured out their thing and figured out the small community that they can create that illusion of majority in and serves that community. And just, it has the, has the willingness and the courage to ignore all of the others, right? That I think to me is the precursor to unmistakable. And that's probably far more interesting to me because it's not so much being unmistakable is awesome. And I want more people to get there. And how you get there is you figure out what am I going to create? Who is it for, right? What community is it in? And then how do I kind of penetrate and embed myself in that community and, and have the courage to be like, if you're not in that community, I don't care because I'm serving this community and they'll take care of you in the long run too. Hmm. Well, I think that makes a a really fitting end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, your new book? 
Well, probably the best place is in the show notes for the unmistakable creative, which I know <laughs> are going to be uh, linked up and made. Um, pressure's on too because I know that you're making this page in, in WordPress, so it's going to be extra good. But like, if you like the show, I mean, seriously, I say this as a, as a former and future podcaster. If you listen to the show, uh, you hear the host always say the whole show notes thing, but like, that's where they want you to go because that's where they've already taken the time to do all of the links. But it also helps them know who's in their community, etc. So like, yeah, you could go to davidberkus.com and find all that stuff, sure. but he's going to link in it anyway. Go to the show notes for this episode tell them Srini, tell them where the show notes can be found that is a good question we don't have the url yet but if you visit unmistakablecreative.com they'll be there awesome awesome and for everybody listening we will wrap the show with that even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.